This morning I am going to get started. I don't know how long it's going to take me to deliver the material. I have a finite amount of material. (laughs) But I want to, this morning, teach first. And if we don't have enough time to pray, I will try not to have that happen again. But it's a message where I need to finish what I'm doing. I don't have um, a good stopping point otherwise. Also, you can pray for me because I'm going to mention a few things today and Debbie asked me a question last night that was instructive that has to do with the content of material and she said are you going to name names and I said I may and that has the potential I'm smiling now but I already know it has potential to offend people depending on what you've read and what you like so I'm going to open us with a word of prayer. I'm going to get started with my teaching with a little bit of an overview of last week, and then I'll follow through and transition in the material, and then I'll share what is from our text, and then what's on my heart as a result of our text as we go forward. So please join me as I open us with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started teaching. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege we have of gathering together as believers. Lord, you have orchestrated in your divine sovereignty that the church is the place where your children come to be fed and to be encouraged and to be equipped for living life. Lord, I recognize the inadequacy of my human abilities to do all of those things for the sheep that you've entrusted to us here at Lakeside. And yet, Lord, that's part of the role you've called me to do, to be a shepherd and to be an equipper. So I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help me to speak carefully. Lord, I know my own tendency for my emotions and my thoughts to start running ahead of my thinking and to just blurt things out. I pray that you would constrain my lips. And I pray, Lord, that you would prepare the hearts of everyone here. Lord, I think the material is very important, but I also know it could be misunderstood. And I just pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of each one of us to help us understand how to apply the truths that you have in your word. We love you, Lord. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you may recall, we are in the midst of Hebrews chapter 13, and specifically, we're in a three-verse section beginning at verse 7. We are approaching the end of the book of Hebrews, And we are in a point where a lot of what is going on is the application of truth. There were errors within the churches to which this letter was originally written. There was thinking that was creeping in that had the potential to lead people away from Christ. And so the writer wanted to make sure that their hope and their theology and everything was fixed on Jesus Christ and him alone. Not the Old Testament sacrifices, not all of those things. He wanted them focused on the most important thing, which was Jesus. And the writer delved deeply into theology on the sufficiency of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. That's what the book built. And then out of that, he wants to make clear that we understand as his children that because of truth, we can live a certain way. Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, is not primarily a church history lesson. It's supposed to be an encouragement to us that says, hey, regular people, even though they were called by God to do extraordinary things, many of these are just regular people, were able by faith to do extraordinary things. It's not them, it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For them, of course, that faith with perspective looking forward. For us, Christ has come. So we have everything. That's the whole point of the book. And the exhortations of the book are designed to cause us to live a certain way. Keep going back to chapter 12, the very beginning, because this really summarizes what we're trying to do now. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. That's what this is all about. We're gathering here because we're all in a race that God has called us to run. 
And the objective is for us to do things to help all of us fix our eyes on Jesus so that we all complete the race together. This isn't a race where one of us is trying to get there first. It's where we're trying to make sure everybody gets there. And occasionally when somebody stumbles and slips, we as the body of Christ come alongside them, we pick them up, we help them get back on the road. But this really is the overarching focus of the application of truth. We are supposed to live a certain way and we're supposed to help each other do that. The only way to do that is by focusing on Jesus Christ. It's not by focusing on anything else, rituals, sacrifices, those are distractions. If anything, they'll lead you astray. You need to focus on Jesus. And as we come to chapter 13, it really is wrapping up the book. There were some exhortations at the early part of chapter 13 telling us how not to be consumed with self, but to be looking out for others, showing love to other people, showing love to strangers, watching over our own hearts to make sure that we have a proper view of marriage and that we act appropriately in the area of sexual activity within marriage. Also, that we don't get consumed by what can quickly become an idol, the love of money. And then we come to verses 7 and 9. Listen to me as I read this. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. And as I introduced this last week, I divided this section up and I made it clear that really this is an exhortation about how to stand firm in your faith. It was a simple outline, three steps to help you stand firm in your faith, but ultimately that's what this is all about. How do we remain anchored and not carried away by other things? And the first step, again, this is just a brief overview to set the stage for where we're going. The first step was to imitate godly examples, and that's in verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the results of their conduct, imitate their faith. I articulated this in a little bit more detail last week than I will go into this week, but the context suggests that what this is talking about is not current examples. These are people who were formerly their religious leaders who were already with the Lord. These were people who had originally preached the word of God to them, and it may very well be that these were the people who preached the word that led them to faith, and they're saying, look back on their lives. And they're dead, but look at the sum total of their lives. Look at what their lives were, their godliness, and imitate that. In other words, there's a more recent cloud of witnesses, so to speak. Those people that preach the word of God to you, who led you to Christ, you just imitate what they did. Did they pray? You pray. Did they study the word? You study the word. Did they reach out to strangers? You reach out to strangers. The point is that it could be any application, but the point is these people impacted your lives. Look at their godly example and you do what they did. Which, of course, is a familiar refrain in Scripture. Paul said more than once, in essence, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So imitating godly examples is really thinking back on the people that may have first led you to the Lord, saints that you know that are already in glory, and look at the godliest aspects of their lives and do that. The second step to help you stand firm in your faith, I've got to come back into this because this sort of sets the stage and I introduced at the end of teaching last week, but it's this, remember Jesus never changes. Remember Jesus never changes. In this verse that is translated in English versions the same everywhere, which is unusual, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It's a very familiar quote and it's supposed to encourage us and strengthen us. Because we live in a constantly changing world. Things come and go. Even godly people come and go. But through it all, Jesus Christ doesn't change. What's so significant is that the salvation that he accomplished never changes. It's done. It's finished. And if you know Jesus Christ, if you place your faith in him, he's never going to cast you out. He's never going to change his mind. Well, you know what? My death was sufficient, but now that I look at how much you've sinned, you really crossed the line. No, 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 no. 
Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is supposed to encourage us. It's supposed to anchor us because the world is not that way. Ultimately, it all ties into truth already taught. For example, in Hebrews chapter 10, makes it clear that the salvation we have was fully accomplished on the cross by Christ. Verses 11 to 14 of Hebrews 10. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We never have to worry about Jesus changing his mind about us. He doesn't do that. We never have to worry about him changing the terms of salvation. He doesn't do that. He's always the same. Now again, this is just a very quick overview of what I covered last week. But look again at verse 9, because I'm going to make a transition here. But look at verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Now that's going to be my third point, and I'm not there yet. But I want you to see the significance of how this fits together. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, and then immediately says, so don't be carried away. There's a certainty in Jesus Christ that we need to cling to. Oddly enough, at least in our day, Some people take that verse that is supposed to be an anchor and they use it to actually teach varied and strange teachings. There's an irony there. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And some people take that truth and it becomes their anchor to introduce false teaching. In fact, some of the people that I'm going to mention today, if you followed them, you would be in danger of doing what verse 9 says, being carried away by varied and strange teachings. And yet, some of those people I will name, and I went back and I reviewed some clips and different things. I wouldn't encourage you to do that. You don't need to waste your time. But they use verse 8 to launch error. Let me make an overarching comment. And this is one of those times where I was praying that I would be careful. And I don't have this written out in my notes, but this thought crystallized in my mind. And so I want to articulate it as best as I can. The best deception is the one that's closest to truth. The best deception is the one that's the closest to truth. Jesus said that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. If you look around America and you were to pull up a book about Aztec rituals where you grab somebody in a conquered battle and you string them up and you sacrifice them or something like that, and I'm using Aztec, it could be Mayan, one of those crazy things, Americans aren't running after that. That's silly. We're not going to start sacrificing people or anything. Satan is a master of observation. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. But he's got millennia of watching. And when you look around us, the danger is not some bizarre foreign ritual. It's people using the word of God kind of like Satan did when he tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. You know, Satan kept quoting scripture. So part of what is on my heart is for us to be more diligent. So let me tell you one of the most prominent ways, if you were to turn on your TV on a Sunday morning, I would almost tell you don't watch TV preachers. There's a couple of good ones, but boy, be careful. And unfortunately, the good ones quite often are sandwiched on either side by bad ones. And if you think, well, they must be okay... That's why I always despised when good teachers would go on TBN. Because undiscerning people think you're the same as those bad teachers and you don't know the difference. That's another story. Here's what happens. People say Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
And that's true. And they take an overly literal reading of that, and they say, therefore, everything that Jesus did, we should do. Not realizing that the Bible itself and the New Testament makes it clear that after the passing of the apostles, things started changing. People want to say, I can do everything Jesus did. Because Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. So, for example, if I say a health and wealth preacher, some of you know instinctively what I mean, but I want to, I realize I wouldn't have known when I was a new believer what you were talking about. There are teachers all over TV that tell you that God wants you to have perfect health. In fact, if you're sick, it's not God's will. And God wants you to be wealthy. Now, I was playing in the Lakeside Golf Tournament fundraiser yesterday, and Ben Kreloff and I were talking, and he shared an illustration with me that he had heard that fits right in with this. I'll share it with you in just a moment. But the point is, these individuals would say that you need to do everything Jesus did. So if Jesus could raise the dead, I can raise the dead. Just a matter of faith. Jesus is the same yesterday and today forever. If Jesus could turn water to wine, well, I could turn water to wine. Jesus is the same yesterday and today forever. Jesus healed people? Well, goodness, I can heal people. Jesus is the same yesterday and today forever. That's not what that verse means. And that's a distortion. I've never heard one of those teachers say, I can be an infant in a manger because Jesus is the same yesterday and day and forever. And he was a baby. Sadly, the Catholic Church comes close, even though it's a different issue. If you go in a Catholic Church, Jesus is only ever presented two ways. As a baby or as dead. You never see a risen Savior. He's either a baby or he's dead. And part of their doctrine is that he is constantly being sacrificed. For communion for them, they distort the whole meaning of it. It's like he's dying again and again and again. Hebrews 13.8 doesn't mean that everything Jesus did we can do because we can't save people. We can't die on a cross. So let me go into my third point and my heading for it is directed at you going to a good church where you're not going to hear these things from the pulpit, but it addresses what I see as the error that is potentially capable of sweeping us into wrong teaching. Three steps to help you stand firm in your faith. One, imitate godly examples. Two, remember Jesus never changes. Number three, be content with the Word of God. Be content with the Word of God. Verse 9, let me read it again. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. I am a single person who has a limited life experience. I was saved, I believe, genuinely in 1993 in Southern California. And Debbie and I, since we've been married... This is our fourth church we've been members of. So I'll tell you up front, my observations, I've been a member of four churches. But obviously I've looked around and I've seen a lot more than this. And I've been exposed to a lot of things. And I watch what's going on around us. And I listen to other teaching. I listen to teaching that I purposefully won't, Debbie, won't let Debbie listen to because she's not responsible for guarding the flock I am. And I don't want her mind filled with some things that I'm forced to discern and go through from a protective capacity. But I don't know of a greater danger facing the church in America than the issue being addressed in verse 9. In fact, that probably burdens me as much as anything else. My greatest burden are people who think they're okay with God and they're actually lost because that was me for a lot of years. But my second greatest burden is probably this. People who aren't discerning, who aren't careful, and who expose themselves to error that is so close to the truth they miss it. It's close. 
But that's where the hook gets in. You catch a fish with good bait. You don't throw a brick in there and hope to catch something. What I see, and I see it carried out in our current political system, is that evangelicals, and for all of my concerns about that term, because it's been distorted and twisted, we would fit in the broader scheme of American Christianity in the, in the stream called evangelicalism. And what I see is that evangelicals are obsessed with all of the problems out there. And I have seen since the early 90s when I was saved to now, this has been a constant What you see from many prominent people is a constant refrain that the attack on the church is all of what's going on out there and it's the corrupt culture and it's the coarsening of dialogue and it's the lapse of morality and that's the real issue. I'll be clear, those are real things going on. That's the world we live in. I've got daughters that are going to live in this. I'm concerned about those things. Those are serious issues. They're real problems. As I've said more than once from here, and I've said when I've had opportunities to preach, I think it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. But can I tell you, none of those should impact the church because we've got God's word. None of those are really the danger. At most, all that means is that it will be Perhaps a circumstance where we live out our faith with some more persecution than we've had before. None of those things should impact the church in part because of 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The truths that he gave us to work against Satan work now. We have God's word to protect us. Unless we don't really believe God's word is enough. That's what I think is the danger for the church. That's what I see as rampant within evangelicalism. So here's the caution again to the original hearers. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. One of the commentators that I greatly respect after years of studying Hebrews, I feel like his insights are very valid, gave the imagery that leads to this illustration. I've added to it, but I want to be clear. I didn't originally think this up. And he's not just coming up with imagery made up. This is actually from the original language. And what we have here is imagery, if you were to think of it, sort of of a moving river. So if you think standing on the bank of a moving river with a fast current, And you can just see, if things get in that, they're moving quickly. I was thinking of images I've seen on the news where there's like a flood. And somebody's trying to rescue somebody because they're stranded out there. And you see the water's just rushing by and it'll sweep anything away. In this case, what the writer is saying is if you're not careful, the flood that will sweep you away is varied and strange teaching. The bad teaching is representative of incorrect theology. Again, this is a book that spent a lot of time talking about theology so that when people fix their eyes on Jesus, they would be fixing their eyes on the correct Jesus. Varied and strange teachings mean doctrines that are foreign to the true teachings of the gospel, the true teachings of Jesus Christ. It doesn't appear that this is a singular type of teaching, but rather it probably encompasses a lot of error that could be going on. Now, from this context, we don't know the full extent of the errors. The writer didn't see fit to say there's varied and strange teaching. Let me give you a book on it. Let me give you a catalog. Here's one, two, three, four, five. We get allusions to and hints of it based on what follows the reference to foods, and I'll come back to that. But it doesn't appear that this is necessarily targeting a specific teacher or a particular item, but rather a broader assault that's going on where there was lots of error swirling around believers, and if they weren't careful, they could be swept up in it, and they would be gone. 
And here's what I want to be very careful about. When I said earlier that evangelicals seem to be obsessed, and it's in the political season, seems to be obsessed with what's going on out there as though that's the danger to the church. It's not out there that's the danger, it's in here. My mind goes back to what the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. You can write down the verse. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. The Apostle Paul is talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, and he's getting ready to leave them. And I am going to read that because I think it is a perfect illustration of where varied and strange teachings come from. The Apostle Paul, talking to the elders of the church, said this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. If you were wondering, what do the elders at Lakeside do? That's our primary role, to guard the flock here. We do a lot of things. But that's it. We want to shepherd the flock. Part of the way we guard the flock, the best way is to teach truth. And we are more vigilant than you would realize to stop error from creeping in here. Because we understand that if you look away for a moment, error can take root. Very few people get to speak at Lakeside because we want to guard the flock. Very few people get the opportunity to teach because we want to guard the flock. When strangers call us and say, hey, we'd like to talk to your church, we normally say no because we don't know, are they savage wolves? We have to be careful about error because the teaching of the New Testament, the teaching of the Spirit of God, is that error comes from within the church. We have a lengthy process for somebody to become an elder at Lakeside. Before somebody's an elder, we have an internship process of at least a minimum 18 months. can be as long as 24 months. Because we don't want to make a mistake. We want to see somebody over a long period of time to make sure that we don't lay hands on somebody too quickly. And as you read through the New Testament, we're told... This will be something that always occurs. I'm going to read some verses. I'll give you the verse references. You can write them down and go back and look. But for example, in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, I would swear he had America in mind when he wrote this, but I know that wasn't it. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Colossians 2.8 has a powerful warning. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Paul was giving instruction for elders. And we read in Titus chapter 1. I'll begin at verse 9 again. This is instruction of how do you select elders? How do you know somebody should be an elder? Beginning at verse 9. It's picking up obviously in the middle of a thought. But it's the most relevant point for our time. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. So that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. I don't doubt that that's some of the same type of thing being talked about in our text. Because it was written primarily to a Jewish audience. And I've read this before, but in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 
Beginning at verse 1, it says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And it goes on to describe some of those false doctrines. So the idea of being carried away by varied and strange teachings is prevalent in the New Testament. God, through His Spirit, over and over reiterated that danger, and in every circumstance, it's a danger from within. Now, I want to sort of hit a pause button real quick. I want to finish the language of verse 9 to explain something real quick, and then I'm going to come back to the application of this to us in the part where I'm most concerned that I not be misunderstood. Look back at verse 9 of Hebrews 13. Do not be carried away by buried and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. What's being stated is more simple than what it may appear. We're supposed to fill our hearts with the truths of God's grace, period. We're supposed to fill our hearts with truth. You want to be strengthened in your walk with the Lord? Be strengthened by the truth. Apparently, one of the varied and strange teachings, and we see hints of this many places in the New Testament, had to do with dietary laws. It's not spelled out in verse 9, the full scope of it, but there were some people who were preoccupied with the types of foods they ate. They thought they would be strengthened if they followed certain dietary laws, and what he's basically saying is, look, people occupied with that, people spending their time doing that, there's no benefit. It's not, it's not strengthening them. The strengthening comes from God's word by God's grace. The contrast is being sufficiently filled by God's word, God's truth, which is the testimony of God's grace, or by external man-made activities. And obviously one has benefit, one doesn't. So the overarching point of this text is to be satisfied and strengthened by God's word, not by man-made systems, by teachings that just sound good and you run off in different directions. And again, you can find references to these teachings on food in many places. In 1 Timothy, there's reference to it. In Colossians 2, there's references to it. The original Jerusalem council of the apostles of dealing with things had to do with some Food issues. Did the Gentiles have to comply with all of the law to be saved? I won't be labored. I had a lot more references in my notes and I decided that's not really, I don't want to get sidetracked there. But the point is we shouldn't be focused on rituals and external things. We should be focused on God's word. That's where a Christian draws strength. That's where we are nurtured. That's where God's grace comes from. It's revealed to us in his word and that's what sustains us. That's what nourishes us. That's what keeps us going. And his word is supposed to be enough for us. It is enough for us. But you wouldn't know it by what swirls around us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It is one of the first verses that I memorized whenever I tried to memorize some scripture. Most every kid in Iwana knows it. But it says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. While the instruction was originally directed towards those who were teachers, the context would suggest the reality is God's word is sufficient for any of God's children to be equipped for every good work. Let me tell you, if there is anything that God wants you to do, you have the ability, if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, solely with his word to accomplish it. Peter said something astounding, very similar. I think it's the exact same ultimate point. 
But it's such a comprehensive statement. If we reflect on it, it really is remarkable. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, beginning at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Because of the knowledge of God, which only comes from God's Word, we have, as a present possession, if we know Christ, everything we need for life and godliness. There are other references that carry similar ideas, but that should be enough to establish my point to you that we as God's children have all we need in God's word. I could speculate about what that might be if we didn't have God's spirit indwelling us, but we do. So God's spirit working in us through God's word gives us everything we need. If you have a challenge you're facing, if something's going on in your life, I can assure you, you have the means provided to you by God already in your possession to deal with it. And there's no new revelation from God. I'm always fascinated at the end of Revelation chapter 22. Verses 18 and 19. It's a comprehensive statement. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. I can't comprehend that people stand up today and say, I'm going to have a prophecy from the Lord. And it happens all the time. So as I often do, I put out all these streams and now I'm going to try and tie them all together. It goes back to my point. Remember my point. Be content with the Word of God. That is what is missing from much of the church. And yet, it's missing from parts of the church where the people who are there would tell you the Word of God's good. They would say amen to everything I just said. Absolutely, God's Word. It's me and God's Word, we're good. They would say they love the Word of God. They would say they believe it's true. And yet they run as fast as they can in ignorance or by design into error after error after error after error. And they follow false teacher after false teacher after false teacher. And you can only be left standing shaking your head going, what in the world? Here's what one pastor's view would be as to why I think this happens. In part, it's because life is hard. And God doesn't always give us all the answers. At least not the ones we want. I can assure you God has given us answers. But sometimes we want to know a little bit more detail. We want God sending out text messages or emails. Give me some, I need some clear guidance here. Oh, I can read about the principles in God's Word. No, no, no. I need to know how to make decisions in life. The issue is not that you don't have enough revelation. Perhaps it's because we as your elders haven't done a good enough job showing you how to apply Scripture to your life. I don't know. But what I see over and over and over again is people want something more because they look at the Word of God and they say, this can't be all there is. Here's what you see over and over and over again. And let me encourage you, if you see this in any teacher, you should run away. I'm going to start using words that these false teachers would use. The types of words that I can assure you are like a neon sign flashing varied and strange teachings. But again, the deceivers are good. So if you're not careful, it sounds an awful lot like the truth. God told me to write this book. 
I still remember when he told me. It's as clear as day. God put it on my heart, and I had to write this book. God told me, he spoke to my spirit, God spoke to me, and he told me that I've got to share this message. I've got to share it over and over. God spoke to me. I I understand it's crystal clear. I'll tell you where I was sitting. I had a dream. And in the dream, God spoke to me clearly. And when I woke up, I wrote it down because God told me, I've got to share this with you. Some of the people doing this, you could spot a mile away. Some of the people doing this would surprise you. I'll mention a few teachers, and they fit into the realm primarily of the health and wealth gospel. Unfortunately, the health and wealth gospel, which is, again, God wants every Christian to be successful. God wants every Christian to have a new car. This is the illustration Ben shared yesterday. He heard a pastor saying, Jesus rode into town on a donkey that had never been ridden on. So God wants you driving a car that's never been driven by anybody else. And they said it with a straight face and they meant it. And there were people opening their checkbooks, writing them checks and giving them money. Who fits into this category? I can't even name all the names. Benny Hens all over TV. Please don't misunderstand. He is a false teacher. He teaches error. Kenneth Copeland has a good southern accent. He and everybody from his arena are bad. He's a disciple of a man named Kenneth Hagin. Kenneth Hagin, the younger, is still on TV populating bad doctrine. Creflo Dollar is a disciple of Kenneth Copeland, who's a disciple of Kenneth Hagin. Creflo Dollar is the one that the Lord really laid on his heart. He needed a new jet. He's not the only one. They all need new jets. Pastor Steve and I still don't have a jet. (laughs) There's a guy who's a terrible teacher, Rodney Howard Brown. He circulates through Florida from time to time. I think at one point he may still be based in Tampa. I might be pronouncing the name wrong, but I see him on TV still. Morse Quelo. Jesse Duplantis is always on the news. And each one of them would say something along the lines of God told me or God spoke to me. Joyce Myers fits into this category. Can I tell you, although he's much more polished, Joel Osteen is in this camp. He's just a lot better than those guys. He's one of the smoothest talkers who says nothing that I've ever met. Every sermon he gave is exactly the same, with a smile. And people send him Tens of millions of dollars. And people that I know at Lakeside have bought his books. Because I need my best life now. Life's tough. Why in the world would somebody run after one of these people? Because there's got to be something more than the Word of God. Because the Word of God tells me I may have to endure hardship. The Word of God tells me I may never come out of this. The Word of God tells me that I may never have money. That I may never have the relationship that I want. That I may never see my family come to faith. And the Word of God tells me to press on and endure. There's got to be something else. Because I don't want to press on and endure. It's too hard. And I please hope I don't sound like I'm mocking believers because it hurts. And I've been in dark tunnels and you just want out. And what happens is God says, I'm enough. But we want more because we want a solution now. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard people say, I know God doesn't want me unhappy. God wants me happy. I haven't pulled my hair out, but I want to. Does God want us happy? In a proper sense. But our happiness is supposed to come from the fact that we're not going to hell. Our Savior died for us and redeemed us. And that ought to be enough for any of us. 
We ought to be yelling from the housetops to anybody who would listen, I found a savior. But I'm as guilty of it as anybody. We're too consumed with, man, these are tough times. I don't want to do this. Do I really have to do, what if I do this for another five years? I can't stand it. And all of these false teachers provide another way. Let me tie it into an illustration. If you recall, Satan was tempting Jesus. Jesus is the king of the universe, the creator of everything. He owns it all. The audacity of Satan is to take Jesus up and show him all the kingdoms of the world and tell Jesus, I'll give it to you. That's mind-boggling in and of itself. But you know what he was saying? I'll give it to you without the cross. Without you taking the wrath of God. I got a shortcut for you, Jesus. You can bypass the Father turning His face away from the Son. You can bypass that moment that caused you to shed tears when you would say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've got a get-out-of-jail-free card, Jesus. I'll give you everything. You just come this shortcut. There aren't any shortcuts. Unfortunately, Satan has been dangling that same carrot in front of God's children forever. And day after day, if we're not careful, Christians, even at Lakeside, are reaching for it. That's why there's an urgency on our part just to keep teaching the word. I've shared this before. Steve and I sat in a meeting where Steve was criticized because all he does is teach the word of God. You know what the real critique was? I need something besides that. I need something more. Why are you wasting my time on Sunday? I need something real. As though the word of God is not enough. But that mindset that I identify with the health and wealth stream of Pentecostal type teaching has come through the back door and it's all over the church. Book after book that contains bad teaching is embraced by people even here at Lakeside. Years ago, it was a book called The Shack, and I talked about it years ago in Sunday school. I never even heard of the book until some people that had gone to church with us for years, not here, at another church, one of them was speaking so greatly about it, and I read it, and it's heresy. And it was a bestseller. And it wasn't a bestseller because unbelievers were buying it. It's a bestseller because Christians were running to the bookstore to grab it. I've talked about it in this class and from the pulpit, the book Heaven is for Real by the little boy who supposedly went to heaven and his dad wrote it all down. And Hollywood made a movie and it made a lot of money. And again, it's not unbelievers buying it. They don't care if heaven's real. It's people in churches. Did you need a little boy to tell you heaven's real? And I've heard people say, well, what's the harm? The harm is he's peddling extra-biblical revelation that's not true as though it is. And if you consume enough of that, pretty soon you don't remember which is the word of God and which, oh, which prophecy was that? Was that that little boy? No, that was that lady? Or was that the guy that fell under the ice? Let me tell you another book. I saw this on the Lost and Found table. And I'm going to apologize if it... Well, I'm not going to apologize. It's a bad book. And I say it's a bad book not because the ultimate idea is wrong. America should repent. It would be nice. I don't, it's not going to be the case. But the book The Harbinger by Jonathan Kahn. Christians have eaten that up. They love it. Some new secret interpretation of the Bible. Let me tell you, that's error. It's not true. Debbie and I listened to it because we were somebody that we love was just going on and on about it. And they don't attend Lakeside, so I'm not offending them. But they loved it. And I was astounded. When I listened through it, I was just astonished. Really. 
I'm not saying that everybody who writes a book like this is an unbeliever or is directly and intentionally speaking for Satan. I don't know their hearts. I know Jonathan, I think his name's Jonathan Kahn. He's, he's a pastor somewhere at a Messianic temple or a Messianic church. You could talk to Pastor Steve about that or read what he's written about it. Not about Jonathan Kahn, but about the idea of Jewish believers separating themselves out and worshiping separately. But the point is, this stuff makes millions of dollars in America because conservative Christians eat it up. There are teachers who you would even hear in conversations around here, people really affirm them. There's a website called BioLagos. Stay away from it. The whole purpose is for smart Christians, smart evangelicals to be able to prove that evolution is real and that it fits with the Bible. And some big name people support BioLagos. And it's wrong. I mentioned the name Joyce Meyer. When we were first Christians, one of the things that populated churches we were around was Beth Moore. And I'm going to really bother people. But I will not let my wife or daughters study anything by Beth Moore. And the elders of your church won't endorse her. In fact, if you were to ask, can we have a Beth Moore study at Lakeside, we would say no. Does that mean everything she says is wrong? Of course not. She says some helpful things. But she's embraced a view that says God spoke to me. There's a whole book that she wrote that she swears God spoke to her and she went away and God told her and God did these things. That's dangerous. You could watch her interviewing with Joyce Myers. Joyce Myers is a false teacher. And they're sitting together as sisters talking about unity. You can't have unity by uniting truth and error. That's not biblical unity. The list goes on and on. Let me give you a website. It's not comprehensive, but I went and looked at it again last night to make sure. Because I used to go there when I was still learning who's telling the truth, who's not. It's not perfect. But if you were to go to Romans45.org, Romans45.org, it's a link Two websites that are accumulated around Phil Johnson, Pastor Steve and Michelle's friend from their Moody Bible Institute days. He's the man who recommended me to Lakeside. And what he has on that website, you go to Romans45.org, you'll see a bunch of different things. Click on his bookmarks. And when you click on his bookmarks, what you see is a couple of new links. And one of them says, Bad Theology. And you could look through and see what's there. The next one says, really bad theology. (laughs) And then the third one says, really, really bad theology. Here's the point. Will that tell you every name of every false teacher? Of course not. And like I say, not everyone fits in the same category. But what you can start looking at is who associates with who. You know, I come from the environment of the Master Seminary. And we have strong doctrinal convictions at the Master Seminary. And they're different, for example, than a Presbyterian background of an R.C. Sproul. John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul are friends. They speak at the same conferences. Because the differences of theology are not about the gospel, are not about salvation. They're important. There's a reason we're not Presbyterian, but the point is, you can have unity with people who have different theological views. That's not my point. But you can't have unity with people who are teaching active error about foundational truths of the gospel, about the sufficiency of Scripture. If you embrace people who said, God spoke to me, how do you know which is the dominant word of God? You run into a situation where somebody says, God spoke to me. Well, then you need to take a pencil and write that in your Bible. 
If God truly spoke, is that less authoritative? And yet, none of you are going to do that. So you shouldn't be listening to those types of teachers. But it sounds pretty compelling. If I stood up to you, first of all, I would never do it. But if I stood up to you and said, okay, I've got to tell you, God spoke to me and he told me this. It sounds pretty persuasive. And I have an ability given by God to speak in a persuasive way. And you trust me enough that if I went down that road, it'd be dangerous. Let me tell you, you come here on Sundays and you hear me and it, I'm so thankful to get this little platform to teach. You listen to Pastor Steve. Every one of the elders here and me included would tell you, be a Berean. Don't take my word for it. See if it's so. But let me say that the word of God is sufficient. The way to avoid being carried away by strange and varied teachings is being anchored in the word of God. You don't need more revelation. You don't need more truth. This is all the truth you have from the Lord. That's enough. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Do I think the Lord is active in our lives? Of course, he indwells us. But the way God gives direction is always going to be through his word. It's not going to be because I had a dream. If I had a dream, I don't wake up writing it down thinking, what is God trying to teach me? I try and think, what did I just watch on TV? Or what did I eat before I went to bed? Because that's not the Word of God. But what you hear is people say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and day for, and forever. He was given a new word then. So he's given me a new word now. That's not what that verse means. And if you follow after that logic, it will lead you into error. I want to say to you that I realize I open a can of worms with a message like this. And there's a reason why I don't spend every week telling you this person's bad, here's what they teach. This person's bad, here's what they teach. Because my best help to you is to teach you truth. The more truth I teach you, you should be able, with a little bit of discernment and the the leading of the Holy Spirit, you should be able to discern truth from error. My goal is to teach you truth, not to spend time talking error. I don't even like watching video clips of error. I don't like reading those things. I do it to have enough knowledge to protect the flock, to guard the flock, to protect the flock. But I don't even like it, because I know what I need. I don't need error. I need truth. So if you have concerns about a teacher or if somebody recommends to you a new book by somebody you don't know, let me encourage you to do something. Ask one of the elders. Ask me. Ask Pastor Steve. I recognize that you're bombarded with information. There's no way that I could stand up here and say, well, everybody just raise your hand right now. We'd be here for a month. But be discerning. Be careful. Just because somebody is a popular name, just because they're not a Pentecostal, just because they have a big name, don't believe it. Look more closely. Ask questions. We're here to serve you. We're not trying to constrain you. We're not trying to deprive you. We want to protect you. Let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I am aware of my own inadequacy in moments like this. Lord, you've given me, as one of the elders at Lakeside, a task that is staggering to protect your children from error, to guard them. And Lord, as much as I love the people at Lakeside, and I do, I recognize that some of them don't want to be guarded. I pray that's not the case with anybody in this class right now. And I know some of the people that need to be guarded, Lord, don't even recognize it. They think they're able to handle things that they're not. 
Lord, I pray that you'd protect every one of us. I recognize, Lord, that I'm susceptible to error. That if I'm not careful, well, I, can be, I can be led astray. Lord, I pray for every one of us that you would guard our hearts from error. Lord, varied and strange teachings swirl around us every day. They're bombarded into our homes through television, through the radio, through the internet. Lord, protect us with your truth. And help us to be content with your word. Lord, help us to be satisfied with what you've given us. And help us apply what you've given us in a way that enables us to live lives walking in truth and bringing you glory. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.